0: trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story all make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to Access to Excellence. I'm John Hollis. Today we're speaking with Chris Elsey. Chris is the director of George Mason University's Sport and American Culture Minor Program and has written extensively on the Olympics and Olympic history and the Cold War in sport. Chris is also a six foot five forward at Penn, where he earned his bachelor's degree in English, and also has a PhD in American Studies from Purdue University and played professional basketball even for several years in Europe and Australia. With the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo postponed because of the coronavirus pandemic, Chris seemed a natural to talk about the games as both an athletic event and a cultural and political platform. Chris, you've got quite the resume. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, John. First, you're a former professional basketball player, which I'm really so jealous of. Are you missing watching sports on TV or in person, Chris? Well,
1: thanks for that plug, John. That was many, many years ago, playing professional basketball. But to get to your question, yes, I am missing watching sports. Sports have have been such an integral part of my life, playing basketball and various other sports, but also the study of sport more recently. I miss watching the excitement of the sport, the feats of greatness that you see on the playing field and on the court. And I also miss watching the shared experience, right, that you get right. from a community. In fact, this past semester, when it was evident that we would be going to online learning, I thought about some assignments. I was teaching a course on the history of basketball, and one of the things that I emphasized in the class is how basketball, whether it's in an early setting or rural setting, basketball forms a sense of community. And I thought about creating an assignment in which I did, trying to have the students address a question, what did we miss out by not having March Madness this year? And students wrote about the economics of it, you know, the money that March Madness generates, they talked about social and cultural experience. So it was good to see that the students were uh, able to pick up on
0: that what is it about the Olympics in particular, Chris, that attracted you so much that it became a part of your academic life?
1: Well, I think uh, on a personal level, two things. First is having played overseas in Europe and in Australia for several years. I appreciate the international aspect. I've traveled, I've been to more than 60 countries. I enjoy learning about other cultures. And the Olympics, well, that's kind of a, a lesson for people who are watching the games, both in person and on television. So I, I really appreciate that kind of international part of it. I like watching the peak of athletic greatness, how athletes can push themselves to do things that they never thought they could. And then ever since I went back to graduate school and decided to focus on sport history and the Olympic Games in particular, I like the way the Olympics reflect these issues of politics, of society, of, of race, and of culture, and we'll be talking a little bit about this later, I assume, but that the Games themselves just don't exist on a plane, a separate plane. They are connected to human experience and history and so i look at the games i look at for history in general as a way to talk about these things uh, with students and have them learn about history that way
0: uh, i was telling you before i'm a former sports writer and i've covered the 1996 atlanta summer olympics it was actually in centennial park when that bomb went off so I, I love hearing your stories about the olympics what's your first recollection of the olympics
1: that's a good question i would I would probably say, you know, when I, my first memories of the games, I, I'm sure, I can't really recall uh, the games of 72 in Munich or the summer games that year. I was almost seven years old at that point. But of course, studying about those games, and I know quite a bit about them. But I'd probably say the 1976 Olympics I was almost 11 years old I was really becoming involved in sports just not basketball but all other sports and you know there are some moments of those games that have been etched in my mind right Bruce Jenner the decathlet you know after he won the 1500 meters the last event of the decathlon and and how he was given a flag, an American flag, one of those little flags, and ran around the track waving that. And of course, he adorned countless weedy boxes after that. The feats of Edwin Moses, the 400-meter hurdler from Dayton, Ohio. Maybe I had a little bit of a personal connection because I grew up in a town not too far from Dayton. And uh, of course, after that, Edwin Moses had that incredible string of, I don't know how many it was, maybe 100, more than 120. Over 100, 60, right. Other stories, Nadia each and and the American boxers, right? I think there were five of them that year. The Stinks Brothers, Sugar Ray Leonard. That's right. Um, winning those gold medals. Uh, right. The basketball Mary Lou, team. Mary Lou Retton. No, she was uh, 84. She was 84. Yeah. She was 84. That's right. But those kind of things that just kind of stick out in my mind, uh, Lasse Buren, the great distance runner from Finland or on a notorious East German team, right? You know, people were amazed and slightly befuddled by the fact that they had won so many gold medals that year, but later it was proven that they had instituted this massive doping program. How could you have a country the size of East Germany winning more gold medals than the United States? Those were probably the first games that I really
0: paid attention to. Well, under normal circumstances, we'd all be glued to the TV, watching action in Tokyo, the Tokyo Olympics. What's going to be the fallout from this decision to postpone the Olympics? And will we have to wait and see if they even come off next year as, as uh, proposed?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I really don't know. I guess probably I would have to say it would be. Okay. we have to take a wait-and-see approach. The Olympics, because they are so well-known, I mean, if you even think of the insignia, right, the five Olympic rings, that has to be considered to be one of the top five Olympic, excuse me, iconic images or logos along with the Apple logo from Apple computers or, you know, McDonald's golden arches or the Nike swoosh. So I think the Olympic Games will always kind of exist on some level. You know, you think about the Tokyo Organizing Committee. They waited, if memory serves me correct, they were one of the last major sporting events or organizations to say we're going to postpone it. So you
0: don't think it would hurt the brand next year for the Olympics if there were no Olympics?
1: No, I don't, because I think it's such a well-recognized event. The mega event comes along every two years or every four years if you're talking about the summer and winter games. You think about the massive athletic event. Really, the World Cup. The World Cup in soccer is the only one that can compare to the game.
0: You mentioned that the IOC and the Japanese organizers really waited to the last minute, last possible moment to cancel the event. Why were they so far behind the other sports? Obviously, logistically, it's the challenges to try to reschedule, but why do you think they waited?
1: Yeah, well, I think you're right. Logistically, you're playing an incredibly complex schedule. You have so many parts that need to fit together. So logistically I think that's one of the reasons. The other thing is the amount of investment that goes into hosting, staging these games, these cities and countries invest. In some ways the amount of investment is just too great to have the games just totally be Brass. you think about the figures that I'm about to give you kind of vary but generally I think they probably hold true you know in Atlanta in 1996 more than three billion dollars went into hosting those games Athens in 2004 some estimates have it up to 15 billion dollars. Beijing in 2008 had to have broken the bank at 45 billion dollars or so and then Sochi Russia the Winter games in 2000 2014, more than $50 billion, I've heard figures need about. So the investment, there's a lot of financial gain to be gotten from hosting these games, television revenue since the 2000s, since Sydney in 2000. The potential for television revenue is easily over a billion dollars. And then you add on sponsorships, international sponsorships. The gain that can be earned from from hosting is really great. You have games serving as publicity for the country or the city itself. The political gain that can be gotten from hosting these games, all you have to think about is the opening ceremonies of the 2014 Sochi Games, in which Russia literally announced their resurgence as a major political player in the world.
0: In so many Olympics, you talked about building extravaganzas and complexes that go up just for the Olympics. And in a lot of cases, they're left unused after the event has gone on. You know, I'm thinking about Rio, like you mentioned, Athens and Beijing and other places like Montreal, we've seen they've run up massive public debt. Um, I guess they figured this bang for the buck for hosting the games is, is worth it, though. Any idea what the, about how they make those calculations? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned
1: those Montreal games because those really – Uh, were kind of a watershed moment for the Olympic movement. Those games talk about breaking the bank and how much the organizers of those games woefully, woefully underestimated the cost. Estimates, I think, are in the billions of dollars. But in 1984, you had kind of Change that was introduced by the Los Angeles organizing committee, and it showed up to that moment, right? That in the history of the game, the games really hadn't been that profitable. In fact, there had rarely, rarely, any games had seen a profit. But in 1984, the way the games were organized, using venues in Los Angeles that had that were in existence already, drumming up sponsorships from major corporations and businesses, the and I think the committee showed that the game could turn a profit, and indeed it did. I think the game generated upwards of $200 million in profit, whereas before, say, 1984, even 1984, cities were, and countries were a little hesitant about bidding for hosting the games. After 1984, there was a reverse of that and kind of bidding war took hold. And of course, the potential for revenue, potential for publicity, potential for political gain, that really moved many other countries to throw their hats into the
0: ring. You talked about the cost and everything. I know, conversely, on the other end, in Atlanta in 1996, there was a lot of criticism for the Atlantic Olympic Committee because of the corporate sponsorship. I mean, literally, you cannot walk down the street in Atlanta. 24 years ago and i would Coca Cola advertisements everywhere and I know there's a lot of political international backlash about that as well so it seems like everybody's looking for that middle ground too would you agree with that
1: yeah, you know, I think in some ways those 1996 games reflected the success, right? They tried to repeat what Ubaroff, Peter Eubaroff, who was the president of the organizing committee, had done in those games. And, you know, let's not forget that Coca-Cola was and is headquartered in Atlanta. So, sure. you know, there was
0: trying to tout a kind of hometown greatness there. And those Olympics also, people fail to realize, also like you mentioned, that put Atlanta on the map as not just an American city, but an international one.
1: You're absolutely right. You know, prior to the 1970s, with Avery Brundage especially, he was the IOC president, he was an American, he believed in anti-professionalism, he was staunchly a believer in amateurism, he believed that politics should be kept out of the games, and he saw he saw the games through kind of almost a religious lens, and one of the things that he was afraid of happening to the games, he was afraid the games would become too commercialized. Mm-hmm. The games would become too big. Turns out that he probably was right in that regard. The games have just grown to a, an enormous, an enormous scale.
0: Now how did the Cold War at the Soviet Union drive American interest in media coverage of the Olympics? And has that interest in coverage dynamic changed since the fall of the Soviet Union? I believe, I
1: firmly believe, that one of the reasons why the game grew was because of that political rivalry, right? The Cold War had been built between the East and the West, between the United States and the Soviet Union in particular. You know, the first summer games that the U.S. and the Soviet Union competed in uh, were those games in Helsinki in 1952, and really ever since, well, up until the breakup of the Soviet Union. The last summer game, they competed in was 1988, and then in 1992, they competed kind of, you know, it was a, a, a catch-all term called the Commonwealth of Independent States. But the games, or really, for that matter, any kind of athletic event the United States and the Soviet Union competed against in uh, the, the, the athletic competitions, the Olympics in this case served as a kind of proxy struggle for the Cold War. Policymakers, politicians, journalists, even athletes themselves from both sides would use the game to show the supposed dominance uh, one system or ideology held over the other. If you go back and scroll through any old rolls of microfilm and look at old issues of newspapers in the United States and in the Soviet Union, the prominence of medal tables, gold, silver, and bronze medal tables, and the number that each country had won, and people would gauge the success of the Olympic performance by how many medals their nation's athletes had won in those games. But, you know, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, I think the games continued on an up trajectory. It was almost as if, you know, if you think about those 1992 games where the Soviet Union did not compete, and the fall of the wall had occurred prior to that, and that element, the Cold War element had been removed. It's at that moment where you have the large-scale introduction of professionalism into the Olympics, and, uh, you know, all you have to think about is the attention that the United States basketball team, right, made up of professional all-stars, the dream team with Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan and Lance Bird and Charles Barkley and David Robinson and so forth. The attention that they generated, not only in the United States, but globally, internationally. I can remember I was in Belgium at that time while the games were going on, and I would go into maybe a brasserie or a restaurant to watch the game, and the games would be on. And I remember a couple of times I would watch the game and i look across the room and there would be you know, older women watching the game. It's hard to imagine that they would have had any interest in basketball or the Olympics themselves. But the dream team, it was a phenomenon. It was just an absolute phenomenon and they were followed around like rock stars. It was really quite the
0: theme. No doubt. But politics, society and culture have always been part of the Olympics, right?
1: Yes, uh, that's true. Examples uh, abound. You take a look at the uh, 1896 games, the first modern games. There were incidences there of nationalism. The Hungarian athletes uh, refused to participate under the Austro-Hungarian flag. The Greek hosts, right, one of the the kind of culminating event was the marathon and a Greek runner named Spiriton Luis came into the stands to the cheers of Greece, you know, a, a Greek, a Greek is winning this and supposedly, I don't know if this is true, but the story is that Greek leadership, including Prince Constantine, descended from the stands and started running side by side the Greek marathon. or You have, in 1908, the imperialistic struggle between the United States and Great Britain at the time manifests itself in heated competitions and accusations of unfair and biased judging by the British officials. Even games that had been canceled due to the world wars in 1916 with World War I and in 1940 and 44 with World War II. Of course, politics intruded into those games. And, of course, the games that really, in my opinion at least, were the most politicized were the 1936 Berlin Summer Games, right, organized and propagandized by the Third Reich. Done so to kind of counter the narrative of prejudice and bigotry and uh, anti Jewish sentiments and laws that were occurring in Germany at the time and to kind of legitimize, really, the Nazi regime in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of German citizens. The 1936 games, it was the first, many people don't realize this, but what is kind of been considered an institution of the Olympics. The torch relay was the creation of the Nazi regime. The 1936 featured the torch relay for the first time, used as kind of an instrument of propaganda, but also to draw a direct link or connection between the Third Reich and uh, ancient Greece. In 1936, they assembled this huge cultural program, just an extensive cultural program that showed off German greatness from organizing operas and museum exhibitions and kind of what would be considered lowbrow exhibitions even at the time, put on in the name of German greatness. And then, of course, there was this huge, massive exposition that they had staged that was simply called Deutschland, Germany. And they basically celebrated all things German, including the Gutenberg Bible and the Hitler-Mein Kampf. So you could just go up through each game and there are incidences of the intrusion of politics into the game. You
0: know what I was always fascinated about? In the 1972 Olympics when the American team lost for the first time to the Soviets in that controversial gold medal game, a lot of people don't realize that to this day that no Americans have picked up those silver medals.
1: Yeah, that's my understanding. Uh, You know, I've studied that game a little bit and written on it a little bit, and that's my understanding. You know, I don't know where the medals are at this particular moment, but several years ago, they were in some vault, I think, in Lausanne, Switzerland, perhaps. (laughs) And the players on that American team were adamant. You speak to them about that game today. They are absolutely adamant that they won that game fair and square. But by contrast, you were to talk. At least in my view, uh, any Soviet player from that game, uh, they would express something totally opposite that they had won the game fair and square and i think one of the reasons why is that the cold war the views of the other kind of conditioned how they saw that game and that's really an excellent excellent way to talk about the cold war in the olympics and show students the ideological difference that cropped up throughout the, the 40 45 years of, of the cold war
0: when we speak about politics at the olympics it's not just governments either i mean Two of the most political moments, the most memorable political moments in Olympic history were the raised black fist in Mexico City in 1968 by Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And then of course, the taking of the Israeli team as hostages by terrorists in 72 in, in Munich. How do the, these events resonate for you in a historical perspective and in terms of how the Olympics have evolved?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think it kind of cuts to the heart of the matter when teaching sport history. You know, if you think about, uh, well, the uh, 72 games and the Munich Massacre, it's one way to get students to think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and then see that through the lens of the unfolding of the tragedy in Munich. You think about Smith and Carlos and the Black Power Salute uh, of those games in Mexico City in 1938. You know, it's a way to talk about how divided the country was talk about the social upheaval of the 1960s after Smith and Carlos gave those the, the black power suits on the metal diet they were vilified by a large segment of the society in fact they were essentially booted out of the game, told to go back to the U.S. And simultaneously, they were celebrated by another segment of society. So I think that kind of illustrates this wide gap that existed in the country at the time. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, I think, from a historical perspective, no matter how hard the International Olympic Committee, no matter how hard SIOC presidents, such as Avery Brundage, no matter how hard they tried to convince people that the games were merely an athletic event it's hard to argue that that was the case politics culture society issues social issues issues of race all of these things kind of get mixed into the game and deeper you dig the more you can see how that's the
0: case well Chris how about politics during the original games which began as some suggest in 776 BC did we see a lot of the same things back then yeah, for
1: the most part, politics did inform people's understanding. One example is the struggle over Olympia between Ellis, uh, a city about 50 kilometers from Olympia, and a city that oversaw the sacred site, and Pisa, a uh, smaller city nearby. The people of Pisa believed it was their responsibility to oversee Olympia since they were closer. The people of Elis, however, disagreed, and one of the most bizarre scenes took place in the fourth century BCE. Conflict broke out between the Elians and the Physatons, whom were aided by uh, another group of people called the Akkadians. Actually, the Arcadians had recently defeated the Elians, and the Arcadians needed assistance in preparing for and staging the game the aliens mounted an attack to take back the games, and fighting broke out while the games actually were going on in the 360 BCE.
0: You know, my next question is, we always hear stories about this Olympic truce where wars were stopped or whatnot during the original Olympics. How much of this is true, and how much of this is just kind of tall tale passed along through generations?
1: As far as I understand, yes, there was a kind of Olympic truce that did take place during these games. The the Greek term is kecharia, and uh, this was established to allow for the safe voyage of athletes and judges and spectators and dignitaries to Olympia. Don't forget, ancient Greece was composed of many, many different city-states, and oftentimes these city-states, fought one another or were part of an alliance against another group of city-states that formed an alliance, so this was common. Also, this truce was put in place to allow Ellis, the the group that I just spoke about, the Ellians, to stage the game without worrying about being attacked. So yeah, wars were stopped, though I'm almost certain conflict probably flared from time to time.
0: What would you say is your defining Olympic moment, just in terms of athletics? Personally, i probably
1: have to say during my lifetime, Carl Lewis in 1984 at those games in Los Angeles. The fact that he captured four gold medals during those games in the 100 meters, 200 meters, 4x100 relay, and the long jump. It was just an incredible feat, and plus his exploits. Recall those of Jesse Owens in 1936
0: at the Games of Berlin. What about the U.S. men's hockey team beating the Soviets in Lake Placid in 1980? Hard to believe that's been 40 years already.
1: Yeah, right. I know. 40 years. That's amazing. You know, that was also an incredible accomplishment, especially when you consider that the Soviet team – which was heavily heavily favored to win the gold that year, had demolished the American 10 to three in an exhibition match prior to the start of the games. But the American squad, the young American squad, especially compared to the Soviet team, beat the Soviets four to three, I believe the score was, in the medal round, and then went on to defeat Finland in the next game, giving the U.S. its first gold medal in hockey since 1960.
0: It's funny you touch on that because that's the part I think is finding most amazing. It, a lot of people forget that was not the gold medal game against the Russians.
1: No, that's right. I mean, that's kind of uh, I kind of gets glossed over because it was such an amazing feat that I think people just assumed that it was the final game. But they ended up having to play Finland again, and they ended up beating them and winning the gold medal because of it.
0: Wow! You talk about guarding against your letdowns that game. <laughs> Finally, Chris, let's talk about the myth of amateurism in the Olympics. The walls have pretty much been shattered now, but it put up a good fight and died hard. Where did that come from, and why was it always such a, a myth among the Olympic community?
1: The idea of amateurism gained great currency in the late 19th century and just not in the Olympic Games. Amateur sport at the time was seen as, as a purer form of sport than professionalism, and many advocated for amateurism in other sports as well, including baseball and track. When Pierre de Coubertin, the Frenchman who is generally acknowledged as the driving force behind the revival of the Olympic Games in 1896, began his quest to restart the games in the 1890s, he used the idea of amateurism to bring on board to the Olympic movements many sports administrators from Europe and the United States. And one argument put forth at the time, and in fact for several decades after that, was that the ancient games consisted of athletes who were purely amateurs. And while ancient Olympic competitors did not receive any form of compensation for their victories, They were feted by their respected city-states and got plenty of rewards once they returned. In the modern games, there are numerous examples of athletes receiving some kind of reward, either under the table or sometimes out in the open. And this, of course, violated the Olympic understanding of amateurism at the time. Two quick examples during the Cold War the Soviets claimed American athletes were professionals, since many American Olympians had received or were receiving athletic scholarships from universities and colleges. Americans, for their part, said Soviet athletes were professionals supported solely by the states. These critics claimed that many athletes were either soldiers, workers, laborers in name only. And their true job, their only job, was to train and
0: play sport. That's pretty fascinating stuff. On that note, we're going, to be- we're going to end this very interesting conversation. I want to thank you, Chris Elsey, for being here. And we hope you all join us again next time here on Access to Excellence. Thanks and see you later. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's d c r i. S T O D at gmu.edu